0: Good morning, it's February 29th, and this is a special leap year edition of Doing Life, Finding Peace in Stressful Times. This is the audio version of the book by the same name. Today's title is Garbage. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Matthew 6:28. The egg was slippery with dew, and it rocked back and forth in the pre-dawn shadows, wobbled really, like a toddler's rubber ducky in the tub. Pop was already seated on the middle bench, his right hand protruding from his ever-present gray woolen jacket, grasping the dock to stabilize the tiny boat. He reached up with his left to take my hand, waving impatiently even as I grabbed a hold of it. Come on, Jeffy, just step in for God's sake. He barked at me in his low, gruff voice, mumbling in that way that an old man does with his ever-present mahogany pipe clasped loosely between his teeth. Come to think of it, there was a lot of ever-present stuff about Pop that I think I even recognized at age eight. The egg was our dinghy's name, appropriate for the tiny tender which served to take us out across Dedman's Cove to Fledgling's Mooring. This particular morning in July, 1964, we weren't headed out for a sail. Instead, as I used the oversized sponge to bale the last of the night's rainwater from the bottom of the egg, squeezing it over the gunwale as directed, Pop placed the wooden oars in the brass locks and began pulling for our sea skiff. Another classic wooden boat, the skiff was a 14-foot mahogany outboard, which was used to ply Eggamagan Reach whenever we needed to go to town or out to the islands. Our little town was, and still is, South Brooksville, Maine, the very same made famous only a few short years before by our neighbor, Robert McCloskey, author of both Blueberries for Sal and the even better known Make Way for Ducklings. As Pop shipped the oars and swung expertly parallel to the starboard aft quarter of the skiff, I clambered up onto the bigger boat without prompting this time, always anxious to avoid Pop's growl, even though not always able to discern when it was good-natured and when it was critical. He used one hand to grasp the gunwale of the skiff, and the other to swing the three paper grocery bags of garbage up into my waiting hands. I piled them where directed, behind the front bench, on the wooden floor slats, just out of reach of the inch or so of rainwater in the bilge of the runabout. As usual, the skiff needed a bit of bailing as well, and as Pop pulled the egg forward, In order to tie her painter to the skiff's mooring line, I began scooping the frigid water from the low point in the stern up and over the side with the square wooden scoop my grandfather had made just for this purpose. Plastic milk jugs that we would later use for this purpose didn't even exist in 1964. Pop climbed aboard, stepping adroitly over the middle bench to the opposite side from where I was bailing, balancing the boat in the process. The sky was gradually lightening in the east, a gray hue creeping over the hill between the cove and Walker Pond. But instead of the other boats and the shoreline becoming increasingly clear, the dim light served mostly to reveal the thick layer of fog that stretched over the cove and out into the reach. Their water was smooth and black as glass. Back in the 60s, the temperature hovered around 50 to 52 degrees Fahrenheit every morning, fog or no fog. It wasn't uncommon to have a fire going every morning all through the summer. That particular morning, it was just after 7 a.m., and the chill in the air was only worsened by the fog that fell over us like a wet blanket draped over our shoulders. The early morning stillness was only broken by the approaching sound of the big diesel engine on Mr. Parker's lobster boat, as it rounded the point and crossed the opening of the cove, heading southeast along the shore. His wake entered the cove, rolled inexorably toward us, gently rocked the skiff back and forth, then hit the dock with a slapping sound, and finally ran up onto the rocky beach with a shushing hiss. Pop motioned for me to climb onto the foredeck while he took a seat in the stern next to the engine. Then, kneeling somewhat precariously on the slippery, curved, and varnished wood, I prepared to cast off on his command. I looked over my shoulder, from my hands and knees, and watched as he released the tilt on the six horsepower Mercury, then gently lowered the drive shaft into the vertical position, leaving the prop in the water. He then set the choke, pumped the squeeze ball on the feed line from the big red gas can sitting on the floorboards, set the throttle to start, and pulled smoothly back on the starter rope. I was determined to memorize the sequence for that glorious future day when I might be allowed to start the engine. The Mercury made a half-hearted grumble as though annoyed at being awakened from its overnight slumber. My grandfather pulled on the rope again, and this time got a little more reassuring sputter, only to die after a few seconds. On the third pull, as I had come to learn was usually about right, the engine coughed into life, immediately emitting a high-pitched whine, which Pop instantly quieted by twisting the throttle on the handle away from himself. After running for a good minute, he motioned with his hand to cast off the mooring line, just as he moved the toggle switch forward into drive. As the skiff moved forward, I did as ordered, but realized too late that while the loop of the heavy mooring line was indeed overboard, the narrow line extending from that loop to the float had caught on the foredeck deck cleat. Pop turned to look forward, just as the skiff jerked suddenly to the side, having overrun the mooring, and then been suddenly arrested by the trapped buoy line. Daffy. "'God Almighty, what in the tarnation are you doing?' he half-shouted over the little outboard's rumble. When the skiff jerked to a stop and swung sideways, it had set me sliding backwards off the deck and down onto the front bench seat with an unceremonious thump. "'Sorry, Pop!' I scrambled back onto the foredeck and was only able to free the float line when Pop reversed the little outboard and created some slack. My grandfather shook his head and said just loud enough for me to hear, That boy doesn't have the brains God gave geese. I sank back down onto the seat and hung my head as I pulled my puffy orange life preserver over my red sweater. Tears welled up in the corners of my eyes and I desperately tried to wipe them away before the old man saw. It wasn't so much his anger that upset me, as much as knowing that once again my chance to run the motor had just gone out the window for the umpteenth time. The skiff slowly negotiated the obstacle course created by the boats moored in our cove, sequentially emerging from the slowly dissipating fog. Pop pointed the prow south-southwest, directly across the reach toward pumpkin light. Off to starboard, the Egamoggan bell chimed irregularly with the motion of the sea and the foghorn situated beneath it blew its mournful tone for a full 10 seconds every minute. Visibility began to rapidly improve, however, just minutes out into the reach. A little bit unusual for this early. The breeze picked up a bit. Egamon Reach is a roughly eight by one mile stretch of seawater that runs northwest to southeast between Deer Isle and the mainland. It forms the head of East Penobscot Bay, the head of the West Bay being the Penobscot River that runs up to Bangor and beyond. This narrow stretch of sea right at our front door is called the Reach because the word reach has a special meaning to the sailor. In the lexicon of sailing, reach means moving at or nearly at right angles to the wind. Since the prevailing wind is from the southwest in Penobscot Bay, a line drawn down the center of the reach is almost exactly perpendicular to the wind. Hence, sailing the reach in either direction, one is always likely to be reaching. The ritual which found me accompanying my grandfather to the center of a body of salt water in a small boat loaded with garbage, which involved dumping said garbage into the reach, would today land us in the Hancock County Jail, only long enough to be transferred to state prison, only long enough to then be transferred to the federal prison in Augusta. But in 1964, it was what everybody did, and I mean everybody. We first diligently burned our waste paper in the fireplace, But our diligence on the water consisted only of making sure we filled the tin cans and glass bottles with water one at a time so that they would sink the hundred or so feet to the bottom of the reach. In all honesty, I remember no plastic whatsoever, I'm not really sure it even existed at that time at all. But none of this had anything to do with why I waited all week, why I in point of fact begged all week to be the one who accompanied Pop on this seemingly mundane Wednesday chore. No, the reason I remember it clearly half a century later and the reason I could hardly sleep the night before would shortly become evident. Fifteen minutes or so into our excursion, Pop cut the engine and we drifted to a halt, somewhere near the center of the reach. This was a relatively safe spot. The lobster pots were all buoyed in closer to either Little Deer Isle or the mainland, and it was too early in the morning for the schooners from Camden, Rockport, and Dublin to be heading for Acadia. The big motor cruisers, loaded with wealthy Bostonians and New Yorkers, wouldn't come barreling down the reach until the sun was well up, and the warming, such as it was, was well established. Once we glided to a halt, it was absolutely silent, except for the gentle lapping of the small waves against our wooden hull, and the distant chime of the bell at the harbor entrance. The foghorn was so common an accompaniment of morning in coastal Maine, that one really hardly heard it at all. Jeffy! Start picking the cans and the glasses out of that one there and sink them. I climbed over the back of the front bench and sat on the middle one, the garbage bags on the floorboards between Pop's feet. For the most part, the gooey garbage, truly worthy of the term, had already been separated from what would one day in the distant future be dubbed recycling. Two bags held cans and glass jars, and two held coffee grounds, eggshells, vegetable peelings, corn husks, lobster shells, fat and bones from meat and grease from the coffee cans used to pour it off the frying pan. He picked the other bag, without goo, and we both leaned over opposite sides of the skiff to sink the items one at a time. It was about now that you could hear the first distant call of the gulls. Pop, how do they know? The fog hasn't even cleared. Can they really smell it for miles? My grandfather hefted one of the two remaining full bags and handed me the other. Don't know, "'Hear it, maybe. You go ahead,' he said, pipe still held in his teeth, "'though the bowl of the meersheim hadn't been lit once all morning long, "'as far as I could tell. "'I turned over my bag, and the clumps of wet, smelly garbage "'plopped into the water. "'The eggshells, lobster shells, and coffee grounds floated immediately, "'but it looked like the other food particles would quickly sink. "'They never had a chance. "'In an instant, literally scores of screaming gulls "'dove at our boat from out of nowhere.' What had been a few, seemingly distant calls only seconds before were now a roaring cacophony of squawking screams and furiously flapping wings. The birds dived right at us, only to spread their wings wide and hockey stop right above our heads, looking like giant hummingbirds as they hovered and swerved. Most ignored us and headed right for the floating treasures, alternately beak grabs from low altitude and quick landings in the midst of the goods torn between fighting off their rivals and gulping down whatever they were closest to. I sat, mouth hanging open, shielding my eyes from the brilliant sun which seemed to leap over the hill behind the cove where only moments before it had seemed hesitant to challenge the cloak of fog that hid the tree line. Through the mealy of feathers, beaks, and yellow feet I could now see patches of brilliant blue sky directly overhead. As quickly as they had appeared out of the fog, "'The seagulls dispersed and were gone in every direction. "'The boisterous outburst of sound "'that had accompanied their frenzied arrival "'dissipated with equal rapidity. "'How about that?' growled my grandfather. "'Ain't that something to see every single time?' "'I simply nodded my head as I looked around in every direction "'to see if I could figure out where they'd gone. "'There was absolutely no sign of them, none. "'They had literally vanished in an instant, "'just as they had appeared.' It was indeed something. I remember the wonder of those brief moments as clearly as if they had happened yesterday, and yet they occurred fifty-six years ago. What was it about that sudden overwhelming burst of life that overtook us on those garbage runs that so mesmerized me at the time and seared the images and the sounds and the smells into my mind? Was it just my youth and inexperience that played the major role? That may account for a part of it, but I don't think the major part. "'Pop stood up from the seat by the engine "'and motioned for me to trade with him. "'Was this really happening? "'The second miracle in less than ten minutes?' "'He crab-walked to the middle seat, port side, "'and I swung over to the little seat to the right of the outboard. "'Okay, Jeffy, let's see if you were paying attention. "'What do you do now?' "'I looked at him wide-eyed for a moment "'and then turned to look at the engine. "'I turned the throttle to start, "'squeezed the gas bulb, and reached for the choke.' "'Don't need to choke it. She's already hot.' "'I nodded my head and pulled the handle "'so the engine angled toward me and I could reach the pull-rope. "'Pop must have known there was no way I could generate the force "'to pull that rope fast enough to turn the engine over. "'He gently put his hand over mine. "'We'll pull together. On three. One, two, three. "'We pulled the rope out quickly, and the outboard gave its sputter and whine. "'I quickly throttled back and then flipped the gear into forward. "'Let's head for the barn, son.' My grandfather said, nodding his head afterward. I turned the skiff back toward the mainland, her prow high in the air with Pop and I in the back. I must have had a pretty big smile on my face. Watch you grinning at, boy? growled Pop around his pipe. He actually grinned a little himself and took out his tobacco pouch. He dipped the bowl in, tamped the brown clump in with his thumb, and then placed the stem back in his mouth as he bent down out of the wind to light up. He came up squinting at the sun and puffed big blue, sweet-smelling clouds over his head that disappeared quickly in the breeze. All of us have memories of our childhood, some wonderful, some not so good, some confused and unclear, some crystal. Why does the memory of garbage day still make me tingle, and when I really, really concentrate on it, literally make me tear up? Why is the memory so phenomenally clear? Why was that odd event such a happy recollection, despite the gruffness of my grandfather, the cold, the wet, the mistakes I made that I thought disappointed? We are all the accumulation of our experiences, overlaid on a body and soul that are fearfully and wonderfully made, as David tells us in Psalms, Psalm 139, 14. If our consciousness is thus formed by life events, then it follows that all of them have something to teach us, I prefer to believe this process is guided by the supernatural, and of course there are others who choose not to believe that. But to me, it makes more sense that our Creator wishes to communicate with us through the people and events that we encounter every day of our lives. Dumping garbage seems to many, I am sure, mundane in the extreme. Furthermore, dumping it in the ocean seems to many today, I am sure, not just mundane, but criminal. Yet God has something to teach me, something to show me, that has shaped me and stuck with me all my life. There is beauty in the ordinary. Matthew 6, 28. Lewis Thomas wrote several wonderful books on just this topic, beginning with Lives of a Cell. It is possible, I suppose, to have lived through that morning in the cold, wet, early morning fog of the main coast, exposed to a grumpy old man, smelly garbage and screaming gulls, and come away simply glad to be ashore again and finished with an onerous chore. Instead, I came away stupefied by the miraculous mobility and exuberance of life demonstrated by those frantic gulls, and warmed by the way a surly old man showed me that he loved me. There is beauty in the ordinary and it surrounds us every day. All we have to do is be aware. Being aware My response to that morning in Maine remains indelibly imprinted in my recollection, not simply because of the sequence of events, but because of the sounds, the smells, the sights, and the emotions that surrounded those events. Observation involves a sense of wonder that the phenomenal complexity and functional beauty of the world around us must have been ordered somehow. The Bible tells us that man, from the very beginning, has had the evidence of a supernatural creator all around him every day, if only he would choose to notice and be thankful. Romans 1.20 But it wasn't just the fog and the sun and the water and the gulls and the smells and the sound of the buoy bells, foghorns, and frantic birds that I observed. It was the tenderness of a gruff old man that many thought surly. It was an easy leap for many to think pop tea unloving, but he let me drive the skiff, and he helped me pull the rope, and he showed me that even grandfather didn't really know how the gulls knew we were there. Those were the observations above and beyond nature. While the observations of nature made me acutely aware of a creator, as they always have my entire life, the observations of my grandfather opened the door to interpretation in my schoolboy mind. My grandfather loved me, even though he seemed gruff and unapproachable at times, many times actually. The correct analysis was that he loved me, Maybe this seems like it should have been a foregone conclusion for a grandson, but it wasn't. My awareness of the subtlety of our interaction that day and my subsequent conscious consideration of the experience in retrospect led me to a conclusion that, once applied to my young life, altered our relationship for the better until the day that he died many years after a stroke that left him paralyzed and unable to speak. Our parents and our parents' parents have much to teach us, that will enrich our lives in a myriad of ways, and they deserve our veneration. Exodus 20:12. Maybe that's the real reason I remember that day so clearly decades later. The love of a grumpy old man might have been totally missed had I not really lived that day. Living means actively participating and observing. Like I've said before, pay attention. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you for your marvelous creation and all that it has to teach us. Make us more aware of the love you show us every day. If only we pay attention. Amen. We'll see you tomorrow.